Amen. Let's remain standing for prayer, shall we? Father, thank you for your presence here today in the form of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word, the power and the authority of it. And thank you for the privilege we have of holding it in our hands today. Father, would you take your word and do your work among your people today? Transform us, encourage us, conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you. You may be seated. We are moving across the threshold into Hebrews chapter 8 this morning, and um, we have made it our practice to have our young people from the Bible quiz team come and quote Hebrews, uh, whatever chapter it is that we're moving into, and so I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, and this morning in our 11 o'clock, we have two young ladies who are going to each take part of chapter 8. I so appreciate our young people. This was last year's quiz material for our teenage um, Bible quiz team, and so they've had to refresh to keep it going, and I hope it's an encouragement to you to hear these young people um, quoting God's Word. So this morning, I'm going to invite Helen Skinner and Grace Donnelly to the platform, and these young ladies are going to um, tag team on Hebrews chapter 8, and girls, thank you for being here, and don't let me make it nervous, but I need need Mr. Keith back there to look at my microphone real quick while you quote, so when I take off, it's not because of you, okay, and uh, thank you very much, so your Grace, Donnelly, you're going to go first, and you're going to do verses 1 through through seven, verses one through seven. Speak loudly so the microphone will hear you. And then Helen Skinner, you're going to finish the chapter eight through 13. Thank you very much, girls. They're quoting out of the King James, New King James translation. And that's the, what the teen Bible quizzers memorize out of. This year, you're memorizing John. the gospel of John. And how are we doing? Are you both on the quiz team? So yes. what grade are you in, Grace? Eight. You're in eighth grade. And Helen? Eighth grade, we got a couple of our eighth graders here, and this is so good. Well, God bless you as you quote. Let's turn our attention to God's word. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Amen. My hand. Thank you, girls, so much. Well, girls, Grace and Helen, thank you so much for that great job of quoting God's word. That's an encouragement to us, isn't it? It's also a challenge to us that we would be memorizing God's word. Well, we are in Hebrews chapter 8, but before we do that, I I want you to think about things that you were familiar with at one time that are now obsolete. For example, something that I used to use a lot in youth ministry was called a slide projector. I took 
hundreds and hundreds of pictures with my old Fujika 35 millimeter camera and I had them developed into slides and I have notebooks after notebooks down in my dungeon study. I could show them to you. Um, And I even have a projector uh, to use, but these are just, say the word with me, they're just obsolete, obsolete. How about this? Do you recognize this? This is called a typewriter. And in, and unless you, uh, you know, unless you work at some cutting place like the DMV, you don't really know what these are anymore. <laughs> and cutting edge place. Um, um, many of us know what it is to labor over these typewriters. Do you remember how difficult it was to make corrections on a typewriter? And uh, boy, oh boy, typewriters, they're just, now we still keyboard, don't we? And we still produce documents and Word documents, but typewriters are obsolete. One more. Um, you're familiar with this, aren't you? Um, the old rotary telephone. And uh, how many of you younger people, of course, it wasn't that long ago, uh, something about like that was on my desk uh, in the office. Um, how many of you young people particularly, raise your hand, have never, ever used a rotary telephone before? Raise, raise your hand. There's quite a few of you. And the reason you haven't is because they are now obsolete. Well, as we are turning to Hebrews chapter 8 and you position your notes, what I need you to understand this morning is that our writer is talking now in contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. We'll explain that a little bit more in a few minutes. But what he wants his listeners to understand is that the old covenant is obsolete. It has been replaced by something new. Now, much like a slide projector, a typewriter, a telephone, we still have we still have technology that does those things, that displays pictures, that produces words. We talk on the phone. But what was old is now obsolete because what has been in its place, what has come in its place is superior. It's better. It's more effective. What was there was somewhat of a foreshadowing of what we have now, but the old is obsolete. That's his argument in Hebrews chapter 8. The old, te- the old covenant is obsolete. There were some ways that it was a foreshadowing of the new covenant. But I want you to know, as you follow after Christ, you're part of the new covenant. Now, if you don't understand what we're talking about, that's okay. Hebrews is a difficult book, and I trust that... Um, You're tracking with me as we are now in the thick of it. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. These four chapters are deep material. This is, this is serious teaching on the part of the author to the recipients. These, uh, those Hebrew believers, I believe they were believers who were struggling to understand what it meant to follow Christ. They were tempted to go back to Judaism and the old ways, the old covenant. And he's trying to convince them of the superiority of Christ. And what he's now in is an exposition that's kind of like without let up. It's like drinking from a fire hose. Chapter 7, I want you to know, he says, that we have a superior high priest. He's more superior than the priests that were under Levi and Aaron. When he gets to chapter 8, and that's our task today is to unfold all of chapter 8, and he wants us to know that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. So we have a priest that's superior to the old priest, chapter 7. We have a covenant, chapter 8, that's superior to the old covenant. In chapter 9, he's going to show them that there is a new sanctuary. Oh, this is shocking to them. You know, I don't know if you realize that Hebrews, many Bible students believe that it was written in a literary style that is, was intended to be read out loud and to be heard, first and foremost. So, so it was written in such a way that words were to have an effect on the ears of the listener. And when you start telling a bunch of, of Jewish people who were committed to the Old Testament law, to the Old Covenant, who grew up worshiping at the temple to say, not only that, in the new covenant, we have a, we have a heavenly temple. We no longer have an earthly temple. We're going to have a heavenly temple. 
Uh, Many Bible students believe that Hebrews was written still before 70 AD. So the temple was still in existence. They still knew what it was to worship at the temple. After 70 AD, there was no more temple worship. And even to this day, there's not. And, And in fact, after that, Israel scattered after 70 AD until 1948, when they've re-identified as a nation. And then one day in the millennial kingdom, the temple will be rebuilt. But it's over. The old covenant is over. And they're in chapter 9. There's a new sanctuary. Chapter 10. There's a superior sacrifice from animal. I mean, they're trying to get this stuff straight in their minds. And so here in chapter 8, as we try to cover the entire chapter, what we want to do is we want to see that the author is making at least five arguments for the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. Now, I was trying to think of an illustration to help us understand how important this is, but we really don't care about it. There are many things in our lives that are really important, but we really don't pay attention or care about it. And what I thought about was uh, taking a trip, going to the airport, getting through security, boarding your plane, plopping down in your seat, looking out the wing, looking out the window at the wing of your uh, big jetliner that you're going to travel to the West Coast from the East Coast. And one of the most important things about you right now that you really care about as you sit on that plane is the Bernelli principle. Say, I really don't care about that, Pastor Van. Yes, you do. What's really important to you right then is that the top of the wing of that airplane has curvature to it and that the bottom of the wing is flat. And so that this guy Bernelli figured out, and you guys that are into physics, you know this better than I do, and I might butcher this a little bit, but my understanding of it is that somebody figured out, his name was Bernelli, he figured out that when you slice through the air with the leading edge of that wing that the air when it's split by the wing will actually track and it's going to meet at the backside of the tail of the wing at the same time and so if you curve put a curvature over the top the air has to move faster to get farther distance to meet the air that split on the bottom so that when it comes the same air comes back together at the same time the top air had to go faster than the bottom air and that's what creates a vacuum which creates lift and it's powerful i mean 350 people on a plane somebody's even got their dog with them and and and, and it gets off the ground it gets off the ground i mean it's lift but you don't care about the Bernelli. You, you want other people in another place who are smarter than you to figure that out. But it's really, really important to you. Do you kind of understand what I'm saying? We are going to talk about things today under the new covenant, about the new covenant, that have dramatic influence upon our salvation and our understanding of our salvation. And in a way, when you get to Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, that's what it all is. You're tempted to say, let's let some other people who are smarter than I am to look at that small print and figure it out. But I'm telling you, you need to understand this is very important to us. It's very important to us. So Hebrews chapter 8, five things that are going to be argued by the author that provide evidence that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. The first one is having to do with the priest of the new covenant. Now that's really what chapter seven was all about, that we have a priest who is superior to the sons of Levi and Aaron under the old Testament law, under the old covenant. And our priest, our high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's reread the text that the girls quoted for us. And let's just pick up Hebrews chapter eight, verses one and two. And let's look at, first of all, the priest of the new covenant and how that makes the new covenant superior. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. So he's telling us everything I've been saying in chapter 7, the point of it, this is a segue. The first two verses of chapter 8 are a bridge to chapter 8 and really 9 and 10. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent The the word literally is tent. It's tabernacle, a place to dwell, that the Lord set up, not man. Let's just stop there at the end of the sentence. The first thing he's doing as he segues out of chapter 7, where he's been arguing that we have a superior priest under the new covenant, is to show them that 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 leads us to understand at a deeper level the superiority of the new covenant because our priest is not an earthly priest. He's a heavenly priest. 
Heavenly is superior to earthly. Well, the first thing we see when we read the sentence, and imagine as the, this was read to our Jewish audience, and remember we said we really have to think Jewishly to understand what's going on here. And the weight of this, it doesn't hit us uh, as Americans in, in this 21st century like it would the first century Jewish person who was in transition out of the old covenant into the new covenant. But he says, the first thing he says, the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven. So immediately we have a picture of contrast. It's a picture of contrast. We have a priest who's in heaven, not on earth. And not only that, we have a priest who is seated, not who is standing. So they would have immediately been been able to picture in their mind the role of a priest as he went about his work. And he would have gone to the temple. He would have gone there ultimately. And the high priest, one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, going into the Holy of Holies, a scary place, a place to be fearful of a holy God, He would go in there, and one thing he would not do, and they knew it, is sit down. He wouldn't sit down on the job. He would get in there, offer his sacrifice on behalf of the people, having already cleansed his own sin with a covering of animal blood to make himself acceptable to God. He enters the Holy of Holies, and there he would have gone about his task of offering this sacrifice, offering up this incense and prayers, and then he would have finished and he would have got out of there and he would have said when he got home for supper to his wife, Mabel, he would have said, Mabel, it was really a privilege to be in there today, but I'm really glad I'm at home tonight. Because in the presence of a holy God under the old covenant, it was a fearful thing. And God couldn't look at sin and so it was a risk. And he went in there, but it was to the reader, they would have understood that there's a contrast here. This is a heavenly, look, he's in the heavenly, seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. We sang that him majesty with a capital M, majesty in heaven, proper noun. It's a picture of contrast because there is, he's in heaven, not on earth, and there is no chair in the Holy of Holies, which letter B leads us to understand further this picture is a picture of contrast, but it's also a picture of completion. It's a picture of completion. Why is he seated? Because his work is done. Uh, I, I gave the wrong verse there. I said 927, and it's nine, it's 727. Let your eyes go to the bottom of the page there where you're open at chapter 8 and look at verse 27. He has no need, Christ, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. What do you have here? You have a completed task. You have a high priest who once for all offered himself as the sacrifice, that's strange, and completed this once and for all. There is no need of repeated sacrifices day after day after day. And so he's done, and so he sits down. That's what the picture of him seated is, a picture of contrast with an earthly Levitical priest and of completion, his work is done. You want to know why the old covenant is obsolete because we have a superior high priest in the new covenant. Number two, we want to look at the pattern of the new covenant. He points out the pattern of the new covenant. And he says in verse three, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts. That's what they do. They offer gifts. That would be like um, um, sacrifices of grain and meals and, and and sacrifices, this is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Let me reread verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, that would be Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't even be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. The law prescribed what the priests were to offer. Well, our high priest isn't under the law, so he wouldn't have any of their kind of gifts to offer. But they, verse 5, look what he says, they, these Levitical Aaronic priests, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that's the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. 
Let's just stop there. Let's better understand what we're talking about, about this tent. So remember when the children of Egypt, the children of Israel came up out of Egypt and they're traveling in the wilderness, being led by Moses. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, gets the law, and he gets specific instruction from God on how to build what we call a tabernacle. The tabernacle was like a portable temple. It was made out of fabric and animal skins and poles and guy ropes to hold it up. And wherever they went, per specific instruction from God to Moses, who told the people, this is how you set this thing up. This is exactly what it looks like. This is the shape of it. This is the color of it. This is the function of it. And he did it exactly the way God told him. They had this tabernacle and it would have an outer courtyard and then a place where you would go on an inner courtyard and there you would wash and clean yourself. So in chapter nine, when we pick that up, and we're going to take a little break for Thanksgiving and Christmas. In chapter 9, when we get there, we're going to be looking. I'll show you on the screen exactly what this looked like. So we're not going to bog down on it today because it's coming in detail in chapter 9. Because remember, chapter 9 is we have a superior place of worship, a superior sanctuary, a superior temple compared to the Old Testament temple, which would have been shocking. They loved the temple. They loved the tabernacle of old. So this is what Moses had by direct specific instruction from God on how to set it up for their place of worship. And it led into the Holy of Holies. And when they built the temple in Jerusalem, when they finally built the temple, they modeled it after the tabernacle. So God gave Moses instruction on how to build the tabernacle and the temple is patterned after the tabernacle. All right. So what he's saying, though, under the new covenant, you need to understand that that the old covenant tabernacle is just a model of the heavenly tabernacle. There is a place in heaven or God has this tabernacle in heaven and he gave instruction to reflect that in the earthly tabernacle. So why would you want to be in the in the pattern instead of the real thing? Let me illustrate it like this. I've I've shared here before that. Janet and I really enjoy, usually around our anniversary time, we enjoy taking a trip to one of the presidential libraries. And there's about 15 of them. It's something of more contemporary time. So about the last 15 presidents have them. And Abraham Lincoln has one as well. A presidential library is really a museum. And it is there that, that these sitting presidents, when they're done with their tenure of office, um, they put together a storehouse of all of the papers and the information of their presidency. And it is actually a working library. And there are the papers from their presidency, which they produce volumes. People can go there and study the history of their time of service. They make a museum out of it too. And you can tour. And so for example, at George W. Bush's presidential library in Fort Worth outside of Dallas there, um, when you walk in, um, the museum part features all of the distinctive features of his presidency. When you walk in immediately, there's a display made out of twisted, burned I-beams from the Twin Trade Towers when it collapsed in 9-11, one of the moment that, you know, launched him into leadership and more visibility. And I have a picture leaning against that burnt I-beam and Janet took a picture of me there. And so you go through and you see these things that pertain to his presidency. One of the things that many of the presidential libraries do is they replicate the Oval Office. So I can't remember if it's George W. Bush's. It might have been Richard Nixon's, actually. But there, uh, some of the Oval Offices are to spec. They are exact replicas of the Oval Office. You walk down the hall, and there it is. And, and some of them, they put a you know one of those big round cords, and you can't go in. But you look, and, and you see everything. And, and, and in one of them, you could go in, and you could sit at the desk, which is a replica of one or two or three famous desks that presidents have used. And you sit there, and Janet has a picture of me talking on the phone, sitting at the desk in the Oval Office. Are you impressed? Because we're not, right? So why aren't you impressed that I've been on the phone at the president's desk in the Oval Office? And the reason you're not impressed is exactly what the readers are supposed to get here. Because it's not the real thing. 
It's, it's an oval office built to spec. It is exact replica. The pictures, the statues, everything is set up. The things that the pens on the desk, exactly the way it was when the president served. But it's just not the real deal. It's a replica. It's, it's just a pattern. And so under the new covenant, we're going to be introduced to things that the old covenant was patterned after. So therefore, this place of worship in heaven is superior to a pattern or a replica on earth. You follow me a little bit? Now, I understand that this is, there's more that could be said. There's many thick books with fine print about these things. But I'm trying to give us a running understanding of his argument in this chapter. Number one, we have a priest who is superior in the new covenant because he's seated. His work is done. It's a contrasting picture. We also have the pattern of the new covenant. Christ's priestly ministry is superior because he is a priest in heaven, not on earth. And the earthly tabernacle was simply a copy of the heavenly and our high priest serves in the heavenly temple in the heavenly tabernacle not the earthly tabernacle the earthly tabernacle is a fake oval office the real one is in heaven okay number three the promises of the new covenant this is kind of interesting we pick it up at verse six but as it is christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. That's kind of interesting. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second covenant. He doesn't write it, but that's what he's saying. So what he's saying here about the promises of the new covenant. Under the old covenant, the promises that God made were not as good. Well, did God lie? No, he didn't lie. But the point is that under the old covenant, the old covenant was ineffective because it proved ultimately that it could not create a solution for sin. Okay? It only showed us our sin. All right? I had something I wanted to say, and I can't think of it. <laughs> Let's reread verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. I thought of what it is. It's time for us to look at the text box down at the bottom of our notes and understand better what a covenant is. That's what I had in my mind that I wanted to go to next, and it left me. Please forgive me. So what is a covenant? We're talking about this old covenant. We're talking about this new covenant. Let's just stop for a minute and let's remind ourselves what this covenant is. So a covenant, as you would probably know, is an agreement between parties. And when we're talking about the old covenant versus the new covenant, or in the Bible when we talk about covenants, we're talking about an agreement that God makes with people. All right? And that's a covenant. So there are several of them in the Old Testament. I've highlighted just a couple of them. All right? Uh, some of the more familiar ones. All right? The, there are these covenants that God makes with people. The first one that you would know of the most is the Noahic covenant. It's called the Noahic covenant because it's named after Noah. And God made a covenant with Noah. So Bible students call it the Noahic covenant. When you're smart, you say stuff like that. And what was the Noahic covenant? In Genesis chapter 9, the flood is over. Noah gets out of the flood. When he looks up at the sky, what does he see? And what did God promise? I will never flood the earth again. And so the the sign or the seal of the Noahic covenant is the rainbow. Now, sinful people today have tried to steal that and use it for other purposes. But that's God's symbol. All right. And it is a reminder that he made a promise with Noah that he will never flood the earth again. And you say, phew, I'm really glad of that. But read 2 Peter chapter 3 and you find out that he's going to scorch it with fire next time. (laughs) So it's like it ends bad no matter how you look at it. Unless you're under the new covenant. So let's look down at the last sentence here in the text box. Covenants are made two ways. Covenants are made conditionally. And unconditionally. So sometimes when God made a covenant, he made it with conditions. 
You had to hold up your end of the deal or the covenant or the, the treaty, the agreement was broken. Or sometimes God made unconditional covenants and you sometimes have to look closely and study to see, is this a conditional covenant or is this an unconditional covenant? All right? And we'll talk more about it in just a minute, but let's go back to the Noahic covenant. Okay, God made a promise. He put a rainbow in the sky to seal his promise. Was that class, was that conditional or an unconditional promise? It was unconditional, right? It's still good today and it holds up. All right. All right. So when you continue to study, you find out that there was an Abrahamic covenant. That's Abraham's name with the ick on the end of it for scholars. The Abrahamic covenant. All right. And what was that? He walks out of his tent one night and he looks up at the sky and God promises what? You know, you're going to make, I'm going to make a great nation out of you and I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless everybody who blesses you. Conditional or unconditional? I believe that's an unconditional promise. Okay? So then we have one that's real familiar. We'll be uh, bumping into it in the Christmas story, perhaps. The Davidic covenant. That's David's name. The Davidic, David covenant that God made with David. What was that covenant that out of David, who would come? A son, a king from the throne of David, right? And prince of peace. King of kings, Lord of lords. Conditional or unconditional? Unconditional. God did that. God said, I'm going to do this. Did David mess up? Of course David messed up. Did God still maintain his promise? It was unconditional. All right, let's just look at the next one then. Is the mosaic, we call it. Back to, back to that one, mosaic, because it relates to what we're talking about today. So that's Moses' name. And God went up on Mount Sinai around Exodus chapter 19 and 20. And there, God made an agreement. God made a covenant with him. And the covenant was what? I'm going to chisel these words in stone for you. And I have these laws. And the mosaic covenant is, if you follow my laws, I will bless you. But if you don't follow my laws, what? No blessing. Conditional or unconditional? Conditional. Now, for our purposes here this morning, and the covenants are a vast study, when we say old covenant, we're essentially talking about the Mosaic covenant. The agreement that God made with Moses on Mount Sinai, you have my rules, you have my laws, including including. Levitical priests and the pattern of the temple and the tabernacle. You have my laws. If you keep my laws, I'm going to bless you. If you don't keep my laws, I'm going to remove my hand of blessing from you. So it was a conditional. Ultimately, the new covenant we're going to find out is an unconditional covenant. That's another reason it's superior. The old, so when we say old covenant, We're talking essentially about the Mosaic covenant that God made with Moses about the law and blessing his people, Israel, if they would obey the law. Okay, kind of got that? All right, we're out of our text box and we're back up under the promises of the new covenant. And this is verses six and seven. Have we already been here? I think we have. I think we have. This is, um, um, but let me read it just for good measure. (laughs) I usually don't have this much trouble in the third service. We'll tell Mr. Baker right now to put the second service online, okay? All right. Uh, Let's go ahead and reread 6 and 7, but I'm thinking uh, the whole time here that I've already talked about this. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent, yes, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion. Okay, I wanted to reread this on purpose anyway. There would have been no occasion to look for a second covenant. So we talked about the promises are, it's not that God didn't tell the truth, but God by design gave them promises that were conditional and they weren't as good because they were conditional, not unconditional. They left down their end of the deal. So God backs out of his side of the deal. And therefore those promises were not as effective as the new covenant because they could not solve our problem of sin ultimately. So what is then number five, the purpose of the new covenant? Okay. 
What he's going to do now is very important. I want you to see what happens in the text. Do you have, do you have your verses kind of indebted in now that he's quoting? So starting with verse 8 through verse 12, essentially the rest of the chapter, he's going to quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Why is he doing this? Well, there's two reasons. First of all, look what he just said at the end of verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, that was it could create the perfection that we needed and didn't have faults in it, there would have been no occasion to look for the second. Who was looking for a second covenant? Everybody who ever read Jeremiah, that would have been his audience. Jeremiah prophesied that a new covenant was coming. So they were looking for this new covenant. When's it going to come? Why is it going to come? What's it all about? Let's continue to read verse 8. For he finds fault, God does, finds fault with Israel when he says, now he's going to quote Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them up out of Egypt. We know that story. For they did not continue in my covenant. It was conditional. They disobeyed. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. That's radical. It's like, boom. So there's two things going on here. First of all, who was looking for this new covenant? Well, anybody who read Jeremiah, so he's quoting Jeremiah. And secondly, if you were in the audience receiving this for the first time, and he's telling you the new covenant is superior to the old covenant, and you grew up under the old covenant, you just really have a hard time believing that it's obsolete. I really like my flip phone. Don't take it away from me. Right? So what's he going to do? He's going to quote the Old Testament. He's got to prove to them that they need to listen to him. And to do that, he goes to Jeremiah because they'll believe Jeremiah more than they'll believe him. And Jeremiah said there's a new covenant coming. And the reason the new covenant's coming is because they didn't keep up their end of the bargain and they disobeyed and God cut them off. And now he has a new deal going with a new people. We're sons of Abraham, but Galatians tells us we're spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. We are the church and Israel has been set aside and God is dealing with his church in a new era, a new epoch of time under the new covenant. By the way, what is the sign of the new covenant? What is the sign of the new covenant? The, the rainbow is the sign of the Noahic covenant. Okay. The law was the sign of the old covenant. What would be the new covenant sign? The blood of Christ. Remember when we take communion, what do we say? This is, this is my blood. In the new, it's the new, the new testament, the new covenant in my blood, he says. Okay, so just kind of keep those things rolling around in your mind and they'll gradually begin to make more sense. So we're talking about the purpose of the new covenant. And the first thing that he points out is that there was a need for the new covenant. Uh, Actually, that was number four. That was the prophetic proof. That was the prophetic proof for the of the new covenant. Now the purpose, number five, the purpose of the new covenant. It is internal. It is not external. Look what he says in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Where was the law written before? On a tablet of stone. In the old covenant, it's written on stone. In the new covenant, it's written in my heart, written in my mind. I don't know if I understand completely what that means. I think that it has to do partly with the indwelling authority and power of the Holy Spirit in my life, how he takes the word of God. He gives me understanding of the word of God. But the word of God now in the new covenant, in this new relationship with God is the word is in my heart. It's in my mind. It's not just chiseled on a stone. It's an internal, not external relationship with God's word. Secondly, notice what he says in the second part of verse 10. He says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Letter B under number five, the purpose of the new covenant, it it is internal, not external. Letter B, it is a close relationship, not a fearful separation. 
So in the new covenant, you have a personal relationship with God like they never had in the old covenant under the old Testament. In fact, in the old Testament, what were you worried about all the time? What were you worried about under the old covenant? Am I keeping the law? Because to please God, I've got to keep the law to the degree that it morphed by the time Jesus lived under the Pharisees' leadership and the the rabbinical writings was, I'm so concerned about keeping the law that on the Sabbath, I even count how many steps I walk for a Sabbath day journey because I don't want to break the law. I count how many seeds I tithe because I want to keep the law. I want to please God, but no more, none of that. And under the old covenant, what would happen if you sinned God could open up the ground and swallow you. God would sap down fire and crisp you and burn you up. But under the new covenant, what would happen? I've got this close relationship. You will be my people, he says. I will be their God and they shall be my people. There's a whole new relationship with our heavenly father is what he's saying under the new covenant. Thirdly, letter C He says that we will, in verse 11, have a complete understanding and knowledge. I have to tell you, this verse is a a struggle for me to understand exactly what he's saying. And I didn't find much help from the commentaries I read. Look, Look what it says. He says, under the new covenant, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Well, we still teach, don't we? We still can teach our neighbor. I'm doing a form of teaching today. We can, we say, know the Lord, know the Lord. Well, we're new covenant. What does it mean? And I, the closest I can come to is I think it, it, it perhaps is a reference to future blessing of the new covenant. All right. Under the new covenant that in the future, we will have an understanding that we don't have now, maybe in the millennial or future kingdom understanding. But I don't know. And I even see guys who have been studying this pretty seriously. They're shaking their head, disagreeing with me right now. But, But I don't know. And I'll just tell you straight up, I don't know what it means. But there will be a knowledge and an understanding that you didn't have under the old covenant. At the least, it has to do with our understanding of our salvation in Christ that they didn't understand back then. Okay. So like in, uh, Peter writes, that the prophets of old long to look into these things and understand the salvation that you understand. Angels long to look in it too, but you understand it. But I don't know what it means when it says, well, you don't even have to teach your neighbor and you don't have to teach, um, you, won't have to, they, you don't have to teach your neighbor, you don't have to teach your brother because they will know. Well, how will it be that everyone will know, certainly in the millennial kingdom, everyone will know who Jesus is and there will be no misunderstanding about it. But I just have to tell my audience today, I'm not sure about that verse, number 11. But clearly he says, and he's arguing that it is part of the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant is the level of knowledge and understanding that you will have. Okay, letter D. If you didn't get anything else out of this sermon, I want you to make sure you get verse 12 today, okay? He says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Is that wonderful? So do you remember the stained tablecloth illustration that Jim Shupey gave me for last week? We're sitting at a table with a beautiful white linen tablecloth and we spill the red uh, shrimp sauce all over. And it's like, aye, aye, there's more people coming. And the host says, don't worry about it. Gets a napkin, folds the napkin, puts it over the stain, puts a, a, a saucer and a plate, a, a cup on it. And it looks great, but the stain is there, isn't it? It's covered. And that was the purpose of the atonement of animal blood. In God's eyes, he accepted innocent animal blood as a covering for sin temporarily so that he could renew fellowship with sinful people. It was like putting a napkin over the stain. But later, the hostess would do what? She would get that tablecloth, take it to the laundry, and she would clean it, and it would be clean. That's what the deal was. The sins of the Old Testament were covered over with animal blood, but later, God would take that sin, put it on Jesus at the cross, and there it would be cleansed. But did God forget their sin? No, it was still there. It was covered, 
by innocent animal blood so that God could look at them, but it was still there until it was wiped away at the cross. Under the new covenant, it's not still there. When you go to the cross and you're showered in the blood of Christ and you accept the forgiveness of God for sin that is in Christ Jesus and his substitutionary death on our behalf, what happens? God says, I will forgive you and I won't even be able to remember any of the sins you've ever sinned. God will be incapable. He will make himself incapable of remembering your sin. Anybody in here have some sin that they're really, really glad God forgot? That's a profound reality. What do you want? You want your sin covered by animal blood under the old covenant? Or do you want your sin blotted from the very mind of God through the blood of Christ in the new covenant? I'll take the new covenant every day. Sin is still serious under the new covenant, but look what he says. You are forgiven. Your sin is forgiven and forgotten. It's not just covered and waiting. And so in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, what? Obsolete. Verse 13, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete? Some students believe it is becoming obsolete is an argument that during the writing of the book of Hebrews, there was still temple sacrifice going on. But by AD 70, it would be wiped out and there would be no more temple. So therefore, there would be no more sacrifice going on. And it was becoming obsolete in just a very short time. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And then you have the new covenant. So how does the new covenant apply to my life today? Well, one reality we get out of it is that we have this personal high priest that's seated in the heavenlies. We've already talked about that in Hebrews chapter 4. We have access to God. That's a profound reality, isn't it? And there our high priest forever intercedes on our behalf. And that's a personal high priest. So it's a little bit like the uh, Brunelli principle. You don't think about it. You don't care about it. But when you're sitting on an airplane, it's like the most important thing about you. You don't think about this much. You don't really maybe care about the details too much. But one of the most important things about you is whether you have a personal high priest or not. And if you're born again and you've been to the cross and you've confessed and forsaken and repented of your sin and accepted God's free salvation, you have a personal high priest in the Lord Jesus Christ whose work is finished and complete. Praise God. Secondly, you have a new kind of heart. You have a new kind of heart. He says clearly in the text that he's going to make us into new people. I, I, I um, read an illustration about the doctor who did the very first heart transplant in South Africa about 53 years ago, I think it is. I think it was December 3rd, 1957, if I remember correctly. I got this illustration from Kent Hughes out of his Preaching the Word commentary series on the book of Hebrews. He wrote, on one occasion, Dr. Christian Barnard, the first surgeon ever to do a heart transplant, impulsively asked one of his patients, Dr. Philip Blayberg, would you like to see your old heart? At 8 p.m. on a subsequent evening, the men stood in a room at the hospital there in Cape Town, South Africa, where this happened. And Dr. Barnard went up to a cupboard, took down a glass container, and he handed it to Dr. Blayberg. Inside that container was Blayberg's old heart. For a moment, he stood there stunned into silence. The first man in history ever to hold his own heart in his hand. Finally, He spoke up and for 10 minutes, he just questioned Dr. Barnard on all the technicalities of his surgery. And then he turned to take a final look at the contents of the glass container. And he said, so this is my old heart that has caused me so much trouble. And he handed it back, turned away and left it forever. You know, under the new covenant, God gives us a new heart. He takes away that stony heart. He begins to do a new kind of work. This new temple, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he begins to do a work in us. One of the benefits of the new covenant is a new heart. How about a confidence and an assurance of our salvation? He said, I will remember your sin no more. 
And that picks up number four as well, a freedom from guilt and a clear conscience. How often have you thought back on your stupid 19-year-old college sophomore escapades and it breaks your heart and it grieves you and you think to yourself, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? And once again, you run to the cross and you ask God for forgiveness. And I've, I've said this illustration many times. And there you are confessing a sin that God has forgotten. It's as though God elbows Jesus seated at his right hand. What in the world is he talking about? Do we have a record anywhere of that sin? No. Under the new covenant, you need to catch up to speed with your high priest. You need to get in sync with God who's given you a new heart. And that old stuff is gone and the new has come. We are new creations in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. There's no need to carry around false guilt. Doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter, but it means that God has effectively removed it from his own mind once it's been under the blood of Christ. And I say, whether you think about that very often or not, it's one of the most important things about you. And it really matters. Let's stand and bow our heads, please. Forgive my stammering with the third service today. A couple of blanks went through my mind for some reason in my fatigue, I guess. But as we stand here quietly at the close of this service, you kind of get the point. I mean, trust me, there's a lot more that could be said about the old covenant versus the new covenant and all what these verses mean. But do you kind of get the understanding? The new covenant is far superior to the old covenant. Don't go back to the old ways, he's telling the Hebrew believers. And God is doing a new work through new people in a new way through the blood of Christ. Have you experienced this new covenant forgiveness where the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin and God blots it out of his own mind and remembers it no more? Why don't you enter in to a relationship with Christ at a new level? Confess your sin, forsake it. If you've never asked God to forgive you of sin and make you his child, recognize today that Christ substituted in to your place at the cross, bearing your sin and my sin. And by faith, that means you believe it to be true based upon the word of God. You accept it as a free gift of God's grace, giving you what you don't deserve. Get a new heart today. Get rid of the old. Leave that old heart behind. Only you can enter into this new covenantal relationship with God through Christ. Please do that. Father, you are gracious, Heavenly Father. You see our hearts and our minds today. And I pray that we would all be examining our hearts today, recognizing that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior from our sin and that the cross is where our sin was done away with once and for all. And Christ finished his work and is seated at your right hand, interceding for us. Thank you for the new heart of the new covenant. Help us to grow now in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus and know what the resurrection power of Christ really looks like lived out to a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name we ask these things, amen.